Hey, Rachel, I've got a beast question. Fire away, Miles. Is his furry beast form part of his mutation, or is it an artificial thing? Which one? That's what I'm asking. No, no, I mean, which furry beast form? Well, the first one was a result of a serum he was trying to use to suppress his powers, right? What? No, no, the first one was deliberate. He'd been working as a researcher for the Brand Corporation. Wait, wait, wait. Brand Corporation? Any relationship to Abigail Brand? Nope. Anyway, in Amazing Adventures number 11, Beast initially mutated himself into the furry form as a disguise so he could find out what his evil lab partner was up to without adding himself as the Beast, but then he couldn't change back. And that's how we turned blue and furry. Well, gray and furry. The blue happened on its own a few days later, presumably when someone at Marvel realized that Gray Beast was fucking terrifying. Thus Dark Beast being gray. Exactly. But he did change back, didn't he? During X-Factor. Temporarily. He was kidnapped by the same evil former lab partner, Carl Maddox, who by then was trying to find a cure for his own son's mutation. His kid. That would be Artie, right? Yeah, and Maddox didn't manage to cure Artie, but he did revert Beast back to his original, more human appearance, which he kept until an unfortunate run-in with a supervillain named Infectia. That was when he started losing his intellect every time he used his strength. No, that was after a run-in with Pestilence, the Horseman of Apocalypse. Anyway, whatever Infection did turned him back to the bouncing blue beast we've come to know and love. Until Morrison turned him into a cat. Right. Which was a natural secondary mutation. Officially. But actually? Well, considering the extent to which beasts mucked around with his own genetics, not to mention the influence of Maddox, Infectia, Pestilence, and so forth, it's hard to tell whether or how that secondary and later tertiary mutation might have manifested without those factors in play. Also, it looks cool. So when did it happen? Well, chronologically, Beast's feline form first shows up in July 2001 in New X-Men 114. There's a but coming, isn't there? There sure is. See, while Beast's feline form makes its debut in New X-Men, his transformation and the secondary mutation are triggered by injuries he incurs in Extreme X-Men number 3, which came out in December of the same year. Extreme X-Men. That must mean... Oh yeah, Vargas. Same fight where he killed Psylocke, but I'm not going to go into details because it involves Destiny's Diaries and the whole point of Cold Opens is that they're shorter than the rest of the episode. Fair enough. But he gets beaten almost to death in Extreme X-Men number 3, and the stress of the injuries triggers a secondary mutation? Oh, hell no. The injuries on their own would have just killed him. The secondary mutation was an evolutionary jumpstart from Sage. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 35th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time, we're taking another break from our usual run through uh, Claremont, Claremont, and more Claremont. And we're going to talk about Dazzler. Now, people have asked us before whether we're going to do the Dazzler series. And the answer is probably not. Primarily because the Dazzler series isn't all that X-Men relevant. There are a lot of series that might involve mutants or might involve characters the X-Men have interacted with. But if they're not really core to the mythology of the series, well, while we do have a lot of time, we don't have infinite time. Now, the stuff we're going to be covering today are two Dazzler standalone bits of story, uh, a graphic novel and a four-issue miniseries. Both of which tie a bit more directly to mutants and, in one case, to the X-Men. The other is just one of the most famous Dazzler stories, because we figure we should at least take a look at that. So I suppose we should start out by just talking about who is Dazzler? Who is Alison Blair? To go back to the character origins, you have to kind of go back to her corporate origins. She was planned as a cross-promotional tie-in with Casablanca Records, coming in the wake of the wildly successful Marvel Kiss series. Yeah, I know, but it sold, it sold ridiculously well, is the point. And Casablanca approached Marvel and was like, well, you guys create a superhero who's a singer and we'll find an actual singer. I think it was originally supposed to be Bo Derek. Romita wanted it to be Grace Jones, but Filmworks ended up insisting that it be Bo Derek, which is unfortunate because, man, Dazzler based on Grace Jones, we would be covering that series. Every single issue, one episode for each issue. Oh, my God. Grace Jones is so amazing. 
So Dazzler was created by committee, which is something that I think comes very much through in her early portrayal, which is just wildly inconsistent and shoehorned together. And she was originally, I think, supposed to be this disco queen with the power to make people tell the truth. So kind of Wonder Woman, but spanglier? Wonder Woman got pretty spangly. I guess that's true. Not as spangly as Dazzler, though. No one is as spangly as Dazzler. In fact, Dazzler's superpowers are fundamentally spangly in that she has the power to absorb sound and turn it into light. Right, which if you're a disco queen works out pretty well. Which is actually also a super versatile power because one of the things that we learn across the books that we're covering today is that includes, you know, things like holograms, lasers, basically anything that's fundamentally made of light particles. So you were talking about how Dazzler was created as this sort of multimedia property, how there was going to be a singer and there was going to be a comic. And the ultimate goal of this, kind of like comics today, was to eventually create a movie because that's where the real money is. I didn't know a lot about this movie before we started doing research. I just figured, you know, whatever, it would have Bo Derek and she'd be singing and she'd punch some dudes with lasers, whatever. Now, we cannot cover the original plans for this movie in the degree of loving detail that they deserve, but I'm going to link to the Comic Book Resources Comic Book Legends Revealed page about this. The one thing I do want to just read through is the cast list without any explanation. Like you said, everyone should check out the link. So we had Cher as the Witch Queen. Donna Summer as the Queen of Fire, Kiss as the Dread Knights, Robin Williams as Tristan, Rodney Dangerfield as Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, and as Lord Chaos, the Village People as the Stompers, and Lenny and Squiggy as the Jesters. I feel like that kind of covers what you need to know about this. Casablanca wanted to use as many of the people they had under contract as possible. Jim Shooter wrote this treatment, which was... I believe you can actually find it online and if, probably you, should. if you look hard enough. I'm going to see if I can <laughs> dig that up and stick it in the, as mentioned. But it is kind of hard to picture what it would have actually looked like if it had gotten made. I'm trying to think of anything that's even remotely on the same page. I think it would have looked like drugs, Rachel. Drugs. All of them. Anyway, yes, so this didn't happen. The musician part didn't happen either. What did still happen was the comic. We've seen toy lines that we've talked about in the last few episodes where there was a comic based on them, and the comic did a lot better than the toy line. And in this case, the comic was all that was left. It was somewhat successful. It lasted 42 issues, but sales, once the guest stars from the beginning started to drop off, it was only every two months after issue number 25. It was canceled after number 42. During this time, the book really tried a few different creative directions, trying to find something that would stick with readers, but they never really did. The series took her in a lot of different directions. She was, at various points, a singer, an actress, a superhero, an aerobics instructor. Briefly, I think, a Herald of Galactus. She was. So was Aunt May at one point. I wonder, going back, is there a Marvel multiverse designation of, of a world in which Dazzler the movie got made and released? I suspect there is. I suspect nobody's written about it, though. Uh, it's a nice thought. So, speaking of Dazzler the movie, there is a Dazzler the movie, which is not a movie at all. It is a Marvel graphic novel that came out in October of 1984, written by Jim Shooter with Frank Springer on art. So this was one of the first big attempts to reinvigorate the series. They tried different directions narratively, and now they figured, let's throw in a graphic novel, let's have some really big stuff happen, and let's see if that makes people buy this book. And it didn't, really. No, there are a lot of reasons that it didn't, and I want to talk about this book a little bit, just in general what it is, because it is a really damn strange book. It certainly wasn't what I was expecting. This was actually my first time reading it, was for this episode. Now, Rachel, I know you'd read it before, right? I had, yeah. It was one of the first Dazzler stories I read, and it was a significant part of why I didn't seek out many other Dazzler stories. The thing is, Dazzler the movie is basically a bad romance comic. Effectively, yeah. But I feel like the way to talk about Dazzler the movie, the way to kind of get across the ways it doesn't work and occasionally does, is just to talk about what happens in it. So I vote we dive into that. It starts with Dazzler, the jazzercise teacher who women want to be and men want to do. There's actually this great exchange between sort of a schlubby wife and husband. Every woman here would give anything to look like her. And every man would give anything to be with her. If you'd said that about anyone else, Mel, you'd be sleeping on the couch tonight. But 
I have to admit that I understand, sort of. You know, somewhere there's another story where Dazzler ends up going home with that couple, and Dazzler the movie is in a very, very different genre. Exactly. Um, This book has the most fucked up sexual politics. Dazzler is a performer. She is teaching aerobics and spending a lot of time at the gym being fairly badass just kind of for fun or as her day job. She's in crazy good shape, and that's a major plot point that's not really, but it seems like it's going to be. It's that usual thing where mutants may or may not be inherently stronger, faster, and healthier than humans. Occasionally it's referenced. It's never really gone into, and the Marvel Universe has largely forgotten about that concept for quite a long time now. Well, in Dazzler the movie, at least, it's an extension of Dazzler just being the best at everything. She is extra special. She is the Barbie dream princess of the Marvel Universe in this book. And actually, it's funny you mention that, because the first thing that Frank Springer's art reminded me of were those old Barbie comics by, oh, what was her name? Trina Robbins. Yeah, there's just this sort of like slightly simplified, slightly cartoony look. Expressive faces, kind of big eyes. And again, the art is so, so romance comics inflected. If you've read any of those older books, like that's what this is. And that's what the story is, because it starts out with Dazzler attracting the attention of a super mega creep who hits on her and hits on her and hits on her and then buys the gym she works at when she tries to use I can't hook up with clients and I definitely don't flirt during work hours as an excuse to get away from him. This guy is Eric Beale. He's going to be important a little bit later, but not until really much later. What we see first is her heading home, putting on music, and uh, giving us a big exposition dump about how her powers work, sort of what she's been doing. And having a brief self-esteem-inducing awkward makeout with a nerdy dude who she picks up at the gym also in an attempt to get Beale off her back. It's a very the power was inside you all along moment, and it's one of a number of moments in this that feels like a very creepy sort of fan service. The writer in the book standing up and going, so see this perfect girl? You could get that girl. You could totally make out with Dazzler awkwardly in a car. It's really hard to tell whether the intended audience are people who are supposed to sort of empathize with Dazzler or people who are supposed to admire and almost objectify Dazzler. I have no idea who the intended audience of this book could conceivably be. <laughs> like be this true. is, it's sort of views on people and how they interact with each other is just deeply bizarre. Well, speaking of bizarre characterization, while Allison is at home, she gets a call from Storm. The way Storm is written here is, it's a little off. It's a little weird. Okay, it's a lot weird. It's super weird. She shows up and gives Dazzler a lecture about how Dazzler shouldn't flaunt her powers in public. Storm. Storm gives her this lecture. Storm whose nose I can't get past in this. She's super weird nose. <laughs> but yeah, she says, It is you I am worried about. There is a wave of anti-mutant sentiment sweeping this country. I know that you flaunt your mutant ability in public. I fear for you. You would be safer here in Westchester with us in our secret stronghold. The X-Men have a secret stronghold? I mean, I thought it was a house, but you know, whatever. Had Jim Shooter actually read any X-Men comics at this point? Presumably, given that he was the line editor for a million years. But yeah, I mean, Storm just does not feel like Storm. And this is really the only major overlap with the X-Men we're going to see throughout the entire story. Dazzler basically takes place in a weird little pocket dimension LA full of entirely white people. Yeah, and again, I think this was really just uh, Marvel trying to figure out what was going to work with Dazzler, what was really going to capture the readership. And work with her as a solo character, which again is strange because... Who would the audience be for this book as an ongoing? Well, I think with the book done right, you could have a huge audience with it. You could have, you know, a book about this character who, yes, is a superhero, yes, has these special powers, but really, it's, you know, all about her personal life, just her as a, as, as a person getting through the world, getting through show business, that sort of thing, with some superhero elements thrown in. I think that could totally work 
if it was done right. So at this point, we cut to this dude who readers of Dazzler, the series, have met before named Roman Nakobo. He looks just like Ronald Reagan, which is weird because he's going to make a Ronald Reagan joke later. I, we, we talked about this and I totally don't see I the swear parallel. To God, he looks like a young Ronald Reagan or youngish, like 40s-ish. Anyway, he wakes up in bed with some random girl he's been sleeping with. And basically, the book does its best to set him up as a total sleazebag. And so... Yeah, he's this aging star with a toupee who sleeps until four, parties all night, hasn't actually had a successful film in a decade, and is a complete douchebag. And this, by the way, is our handsome prince love interest. Well, love interest anyway. When he gets up, he um, tells his butler to do some calisthenics for him because he's getting out of shape. His butler, Ziggy. your, Your most common butler name after Jeeves, of course. He makes reference to some stuff that's happened in the series, how he's been hanging out with Allison, but he hasn't gotten any action from her and he can't believe that. And then he goes out and sexually assaults her. Yeah, Dazzler gets home from a show and Roman is there on her couch. And I, yeah, I think it's supposed to be some kind of like want want wacky comedy. Look at the silly horny man and Dazzler pushes him off. But guys, that's that's not okay. You don't do that. So here's the thing about Roman and about Eric is Eric is set up at the beginning as the villain and Roman is set up as the character who Dazzler hooks up with and really legitimately likes and who we're supposed to find likable. And their initial pursuit of her is almost identical. Persistence to the point of stalking is fun, sexy, and a great way to get a girl. Yeah, and I mean, I can certainly understand wanting to have a character start at a low place so you can have that redemption arc bring them up, but this may be too low a place for that to work. Eventually, she agrees, if just to get him to leave her alone, to go on a date with him, This is after he fakes a heart attack. Yes, as one does. This leads to him basically convincing her that, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to make a movie. If we did one together, it would be super successful. If we want it to be successful, we should also pretend to be an item to get in the tabloids to build buzz. And in fact, all of this happens. But Dazzler didn't make her debut in the Dazzler comics. She made her debut in X-Men, and she's got some prior associations with them that get in the way of funding because this is at one of the peaks of anti-mutant hysteria. (laughs) One of the many, it's true. So they have trouble finding a backer. Eventually, Eric Beale, the douchebag from the beginning, decides to be that backer. And Roman, being the upstanding gentleman he is, totally downplays Beale's involvement while secretly meeting with him. Now, Yay, what an awesome guy. I think he and Dazzler are actually sleeping together at that point, too. They fall into a relationship pretty quickly, which if I were Allison, I would certainly not want to. But again, the book seems to like Roman Nicobo a lot better than we the readers do. The thing is, if you take the dialogue around that relationship in a vacuum without the previous story stuff, it's pretty fun. They seem to grow to genuinely really enjoy each other's company and to be pretty good friends and then pretty good friends who sleep together. Yeah, and as they start sort of, you know, living this star life, there's this great montage of them just traveling throughout the world, being all charming. Dazzler realizes what she's becoming. I almost didn't recognize myself. Can that really be a cigarette in my hand? How could I? How could I pick up such a nasty habit from Roman? I put on a lot of weight. I never used to be flabby there. What have I done to myself? What have I become? The horror. Now she might only be the woman that like 90% of women wanted to be and 90% of men want to do. (laughs) Yeah, but she does realize that she's kind of getting away from her ideals, which is really just performance, is really just that connection with her audience, and she's becoming kind of full of herself, kind of obsessed with a celebrity lifestyle. Now, Dazzler's relationship to her powers has always been kind of uneasy. She likes them. She has them. She identifies with them as part of herself. But... While her powers are part of her act, they've never been central to it. She's never really built herself as a mutant oddity at this point, and mutant has never been really central to her public presentation, and that is about to change. Right, because Roman, in an attempt to get more positive publicity for the movie, says that he has, in fact, outed her as a mutant to the newspapers, and sure enough, he has. She's horrified initially, but he says, hey, don't worry, don't worry, I've got this. We're going to have sort of public relations event where we're going to reveal you as a mutant in a really spectacular way, and everyone's going to love you, and it's going to be great for the mutant cause. It's going to be great. There's a lesson here. 
And that lesson is that you probably shouldn't put together a public demonstration involving a dozen jet engines and an extremely highly powered mutant without doing at least one rehearsal. It does not go well, and the sum result of it is she looks really, really powerful, which she is, and really, really dangerous, which she would be were she less generally disinterested in a terrorist career. Yeah, and so everyone runs the hell away saying, ah, mutants are terrifying, now we hate them a lot more, this was exactly what you didn't want. Wah, wah. Uh, And so this, for me, is where the book actually starts to get a little more interesting. Because up until this point, I gotta say, I I wasn't really invested at all. But at this point, we have some actual interesting conflict other than main character is dating a douchebag. Do we, though? I mean, at this point, she's talking to Roman. Something else has changed, too, Roman. I finally realized that, thanks to you, I'm really committed now. I've got to make this movie now, for the sake of every mutant on Earth. I didn't ask for it, but I have a chance to win the respect and tolerance of humanity for all of us, and I'm not going to blow it. Oh, yeah, the movie is about mutant issues, right? The movie has an explicitly mutant main character who's played by an explicitly mutant actress. So cue a long montage of Dazzler, you know, facing down anti-mutant propaganda and people throwing bricks, which she vaporizes with her cool laser powers. Eventually, it's becoming clear that public opinion has heavily turned against this movie. But when Dazzler and Roman finally watch it, they realize it's really good. It might actually turn it around. It's gonna change the world. Except, do you remember Eric Beale? Eric Beale has been backing the movie, which means he owns it, and he decides that it is never going to be released. There's only one copy, and he really just wants to get Roman out of the way on a world tour so that Dazzler will sleep with him, I guess? Well, I think he basically just wants Roman as an actor asset for his media empire that he's building, and he wants Dazzler as well. So Dazzler responds by burning the last copy of the movie. It never gets released, and you see bits in in Uncanny and New Mutants around this, too. Posters for it, people mentioning it not coming out, and Dazzler being at the center of this controversy. It becomes kind of an ignition point for, again, anti-mutant sentiment and hysteria. Now, she's still in an optimistic mood at the end. She and Roman do decide to split, even though Roman, in sort of a last-minute redemption, runs into Terrapis' contract after she's already vaporized the movie. You know, the contract he's put together privately with this guy who's been stalking his girlfriend and sabotaging all of their work while lying to her about whether he's meeting with him. God, how is he the romantic lead of this? I have no answer for that question. Like, he is... I genuinely don't understand why he's in this role because literally all this tells me is that Alison Blair has horrifically bad taste in men. But you know what is awesome, even though this graphic novel isn't? The Bill Sienkiewicz cover? Uh, well, the Bill Sienkiewicz cover, but also, in some but not always, the second thing we're going to be covering, which is the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. Oh man, we are scraping the depths of the weird in this. Beauty and the Beast came out very shortly after Dazzler the movie. Of the two, it is the more critically maligned, I think, which is a shame because it might be a stretch to call it good. It's really interesting in all of the ways that Dazzler the movie is not. It also has good Bill Sienkiewicz covers, speaking of that. We have Doctor Doom, we have a home for wayward mutants, we have unlikely love stories, we have a big gladiatorial arena. Like, Dazzler the movie, you know, it's, again, it wasn't really intended to be a superhero comic, but I felt that it was, even for a romance comic, it was kind of dull. This, well, you can say a lot of things about Beauty and the Beast, but it is not dull. We know where Dazzler is in Beauty and the Beast. It comes on the heels of Dazzler the movie. The other main character, as the name implies, is Hank McCoy the Beast who we've last seen making a couple guest appearances in X-Men, but for the most part has been off elsewhere in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, so what's he been up to lately? At the time that this series comes out, he is on the New Defenders. This is a team that started out 
as not actually quite a team. A bunch of lone heroes team up to save the Earth, but keep insisting they're not actually a team. Um, Doctor Strange, Namor, the Silver Surfer originally. But for a chunk of time in the 80s, it was this terrific, weird lineup. And we're at some point going to do an episode about this. We're going to get Elle Collins on because she knows more about this series than anyone else I have ever met. Angel and Beast and Iceman were all on it for a while. Beast in particular thought it was pretty cool to be on a team again and then sort of a team that was a little more offbeat than the Avengers. And so they, they kept it around. And at, at this point, he's he's on the Defenders and he's also working on the college lecture circuit. Somewhere between motivational speaking and a comedian act. He is blue and furry by now mm-hmm. and, and has been for a fairly long time. He is in L.A. for no particular reason with Wonder Man. Well, Wonder Man was his old associate from the Avengers days, so, you know, there's at least that connection. So I was looking for something that grabbed me a little more after Dazzler the movie, and when you have Dr. Freaking Doom on your first page, like, that, that is how to make Miles interested in a comic. Man, it had me before then, actually, because this is the first time we're looking at something written by someone who's going to be very, very important to the X-Men very soon, and actually already is editorially in the comics, it's Anne Nascenti. I first knew of her because she was the writer of the Longshot miniseries, which is one of my personal favorites, but yeah, she was doing this earlier than that. She was best known at this point as having written a middlingly successful run on Spider-Woman leading up to the the book's cancellation. You see a few nods back to that in Beauty and the Beast. Nascenti is a writer with a very identifiable and recognizable voice. She's very socially engaged. Her stories tend to reflect that very directly to a point that can get a little bit preachy feeling. And her ability to moderate that narratively is something that she develops over time and is still kind of working on here. Yeah, for me, at this point, she feels Claremontian in terms of the purpleness of her prose, but in more of a sort of bleeding heart way than Claremont typically is. Anne Nascenti is one of my comic book heroes for a lot of reasons, the first of which is that she has done everything. Like She's she's a journalist, and she's a comics writer, and she's an editor, and she's a filmmaker, and she's a photographer, and she's just genius. She's an incredibly cool person. One of the things I love about her work, and it's a weird thing because it's something that kind of gets in the way of series— is that I almost always feel like it would be better without the main characters when she's doing major superhero universe stuff. I kind of know what you mean. I mean, this is about Beast and it's about Dazzler, but they're not the interesting parts of the story. Right. Her ability to create really compelling, really cool supporting casts and concepts is just unparalleled. I joke about that kind of thing with Harvey and Janet and Peter Corbeau, but with this, I legitimately want to see more have spun out of this than did. And (laughs) we'll get to that more as we're going through the series. You talk about how she doesn't really get the voices of characters. You know whose voice she does kind of get? Dr. Motherfucking Doom. It opens up, again, with Doom. He's in his sculpture garden talking about how this art is the only thing that convinces that humanity is worthwhile. And I would like to point out, writers, and especially Marvel writers working right now, all comics should open with Dr. Doom. Pretty much all comics. Like, he should just be the intro to your story. No matter what your story is, it will become five times better if Doctor Doom introduces it. Now, uh, we're including in this the old classic literature comics adaptations that Marvel did. So you open Moby Dick with Doctor Doom. You open The Count of Monte Cristo with Doctor Doom. You could totally drop Doctor Doom into The Count of Monte Cristo. This particular issue opens with Doctor Doom uh, being informed of this person who's calling himself his son in America. He's thinking back to when this woman in Latveria came up to him to present this boy, and we see him, No more of your foul lies, woman. Only the boundless mercy of doom permits you and a crying whelp to leave here with your lives. Never return! God, I love Doctor Doom, even when he's just being a total dick. I mean, I think he just didn't want to pay child support. He just wanted to say it really dramatically. He does own a country. Well, nonetheless, the man has his principles. He wouldn't give $200 back to Luke Cage once. Oh, yeah, that was a great story. <laughs> yup. But we just have Doom briefly. Doom's not really in the series much until the end. We just see him occasionally. Really, most of our time is spent with, of course, Dazzler and Beast. Would it be appropriate then, since we open with him and know that he's going to be involved, to refer to him as Chekhov's dictator? 
Perfect. I love it. So yeah, it starts out with Alice and Blair at a party. This is her going out for the first time since the whole Dazzler the Movie fiasco. And it is a hell of a party. There are cowgirl strippers serving drinks. Some people are very formal. Some people are very disco and punk. I don't know. I want to go to these parties. But she meets this guy named Alexander Flynn there, who's going to be kind of a big deal, who says he wants to introduce Dazzler to a producer of live theaters, get her career back up and running. You know, he seems like a super fan. He seems super sincere. He's got every visual cue that he's going to be an awesome romantic lead. Everything that Roman Nicobo didn't have, basically. So, like, consent? Uh, for the moment. But uh, where Dazzler meets up with Beast is a little bit later. She's at this Hollywood party with Alexander Flynn and also Hugo, who's the producer in question. This is a second Hollywood party. What happens between the first two is important. Her presence at the first one gets reported that, you know, Dazzler is just this out-of-control starlet. She very much seems to be built as, and this is I'm making an entirely anachronistic reference, but, you know, Lindsay Lohan of her era. And her powers are going out of control. Yeah, they're starting to activate on their own, so she's getting a little freaked out. But she's not too worried about it yet. But anyway, yes, uh, Beast and Wonder Man are at this same second Hollywood party. They meet up. Uh, Hugo actually jokes that Hank should join and perform with Dazzler in the underground theater. They'd be Beauty and the Beast. Ha ha. You get it? It's no. The, it's the title. Really? Yeah. Like of the series? I guess. My God, do you think we're going to revisit that later? We, we might. But anyway, we also meet some of the other people who are in this underground theater, and one of them is this guy named Rocker, which, by the way, is a great superhero character name. He's being, you know, a little bit of a jerk toward Allison, and this is where we first see Beast being kind of out of character regarding Dazzler. He's basically like, a, hey, get away from her, man, get away from my girl, and Dazzler's like, hey, I don't really know you, what what the hell, dude? Right, you weren't even on the X-Men when I guest starred in it. Actually, can we take a moment and talk a little bit about character voice in this, because... I have so much trouble with the way Beast is written in this series. It's especially not the Beast we see in modern continuity. And it's not the Beast who's been established in X-Men or in Defenders. He's loquacious, but he's not really eloquent. The, the sort of uh, intellectual and academic that we normally see Beast as, that's not really the Beast that's here. He's more of a funny, quippy guy. No, no, I'm not talking about the way he acts or even the things he talks about. I'm talking about the specific language he uses and the way he uses it. He doesn't sound like Beast because a lot of characters are really inconsistently written over time. You can make a pretty good case for, say, Cyclops or Jean Grey or Angel as not really having a single distinctive definitive voice. That's not the case with Beast. Yeah, that's something, I mean, Nesenti has many strengths, but replicating the existing voice of a character is, at least at this point in her career, not really one of them. I will say, as far as, you know, the characterization is kind of playful and a little bit of a grandstander, that's totally in keeping with his prior mm-hmm. characterizations. That's definitely there. There's some later stuff that's less so, but we'll get to that shortly. Uh, very shortly, in fact, because Beast, he starts really worrying about Allison after she goes off with his sleazy Hollywood types, especially after Wonder Man says... If she's with him, it may be too late. If she ever had any self-respect or values, they're probably gone now. So Beast decides, all right, you know what? I need to track her down. I'm worried about her. I have these weird feelings for her that I don't understand and have kind of come out of nowhere. I know the best way to handle this is to find that rocker guy who, but I think if, I, if we didn't mention him before, he's a, a mutant as well. He's got this sort of horse-looking face, like Beta Ray Bill, but less majestic. And strangle him with a fucking phone cord. Yeah, yeah, Rocker's just sitting here in his house. Sorry, Maximum Rocker is just sitting here in his house looking at his collection of horse-themed art and centaur-themed art, and Beast just shows up and beats the hell out of him and threatens to kill him unless he gets in touch with the head of the underground theater to find out where Dazzler is. 
Beast being one of the more avid theater fans, apparently, that Max Rocker has ever encountered. Yeah, see, that's the thing that gets me most about Beast is just how violent and, like, aggressive he is in this series. But uh, in the meantime, Dazzler has actually run away from the theater. She's getting freaked out by the idea of the theater itself. She's getting freaked out by her powers activating on their own. And she's picked up by a bunch of hippies on the beach. And so we see a silhouette of a person who really looks like Abraham Lincoln. We should post this on the as mentioned because I can't think of who else he's supposed to be radioing back to Hugo saying, hey, I found her, but these other dudes found her first. Let's talk about the other dudes who found her because they are my favorite characters in this series. And they are the characters who I want to have their own spinoff book. Absolutely. So these are a bunch of mutant outcasts and misfits, and we've heard outcasts and misfits before, specifically in regards to the Morlocks, but whereas the Morlocks are like an angry street gang, these are more like friendly hippies. And I didn't realize at first that this was supposed to be the name of the establishment, I thought it was just the title of the issue, but no, they do in fact run a place called the Heartbreak Hotel. Uh-huh. Which is just basically this little tiny mutant B&B. And so you get this great lineup of characters. And yeah, let's actually talk about them, aside from Dazzler and Beast, who himself shows up to take care of her since her powers are going out of control. First of all, we've got Kate, and Kate runs the place. Kate is a woman in maybe her 60s. Yeah, she describes herself as an old lady with leftover hippie dreams. And actually, before we get too deeply into the this place that she's built and that she maintains, so we talk about Claremontian narration. Nascentian narration is also pretty wonderful. This is her introduction to the Heartbreak Hotel. Society disdains the misfits it has birthed. Cast out, they wander. The displaced, the homeless, not even at home with themselves. They are the unwanted, the feared, giving themselves over to fortune. Perhaps if tossed about in the seas of fate for long enough, they will by some chance find peace. But for most, peace is a dream. They'll never touch on those shores. So, if Claremont's got the angry narrator... Nocenti's kind of got the melancholy existentialist narrator. I think of her as more of the open mic narrator. We were saying, you know, maybe the watcher on a bender is Claremont's narrator. Maybe this one is Bernard the Poet. Yes, Bernard the Poet becoming an omniscient third-person narrator. I love this plan. The thing is, I think Nocenti's kind of a better writer than Bernard the Poet, even when she's still getting her legs. Bernard the Poet's a really bad poet. Yeah. Although, man, once you said open mic narrator, has there ever been a superhero named Open Mike? Just like the D&D characters, Maximum Press uh, and Critical Miss and Max Damage. You know, later on in things like Longshot, you know, Nascenti's four-fingered existentialist metaphor, you see characters who are, are just such direct, playful references on that. Like, there's actually a villain named Manufactured Consent in that series. <laughs> that does sound like Anne Nascenti's so writing, So I, yes. I feel like Open Mic could feasibly fit into this world. But let's go back to the rest of the folks at the Heartbreak Hotel. So we have a couple characters, a couple younger characters. Um, one of them is actually a character that the dedicated Nascenti reader would have seen before in Spider-Woman, who's this kid named Mickey, also called Poltergeist. And Mickey is sort of an out-of-control telekinetic. When he's upset or emotional, destructive things happen around him. Yeah, and it's not just telekinesis, it's also sort of probability alteration. Disasters just sort of happen. He doesn't really have control over that power, and his best friend is this kid named Link who is, is a telekinetic. A telekinetic mime, I think it's important to point out. Or at least a telekinetic Harlequin, because he does talk. Like, we never actually see him miming, he just wears mime makeup. He might just be a really bad mime. He might just be a telekinetic goth kid. It's possible. They're both adorable anyway, and they're, if not inseparable, they worry about each other a lot. And there's Lucy, who mentions herself as having washed out of that school in Westchester. Yeah, she just has the ability to change the color of things. She demonstrates this with a flower. So those are the folks at the Heartbreak Hotel. Beast finds Dazzler there. Again, it makes me really sad that they're out of character, because I do actually totally buy 
Beast and Dazzler's dynamic in their relationship. That said, it is kind of nice seeing them sort of getting to know each other, kind of away from the world, having this refuge. Meanwhile in Latveria, however, Doom is watching sheep. As the peasants care for their sheep, so do I care for my subjects as they plod through their aimless, insignificant lives. So, like, he, he makes sure that they get deworming pills and he, you know, fleeces them and, and, and sells their wool. And Yeah, you know, just like you would normally do with peasants. So Dazzler doesn't stay at the Heartbreak Hotel for long because a representative from the theater brings her back. And she's very, very tempted. She hasn't really had much luck uh, controlling her powers, and so... She goes for it, and it quickly becomes clear that despite what they've been telling her about this theater, it's not really like, you know, she's going to go up and sing and everyone's going to love her again. It's basically a gladiatorial arena. What the theater actually is, is nebulous and poorly defined. It's set up visually. I think it's supposed to be evocative of, of the Grand Goignol, but it's got an amazing set. Yeah, seriously, there are like these giant planets in the sky and this huge demon statue, and it, it just looks like the, the side of a van crossed with a heavy metal album cover. And so she finds, as she gets sort of gradually pressured into fighting in the arena, that she really loves the adulation. It's what she's really missed since her career has fallen apart. One of the things I really do like about the way Dazzler is characterized in this, and that I think is common to the best characterizations of Dazzler, how fundamentally she's a performer isn't treated as a negative thing. She is a performer. That's what she does. That's a lot of her identity. Right, um, that's definitely true, but this book definitely is an examination of the idea of celebrity, the idea of celebrity culture. And I mean, we get some more of that heavy-handed narration, like, when it is over, they will leave, careful not to look into their neighbor's eyes, as that would be too gauche. They had their outlet. They are alive, invigorated by the violence they have been witness to. Go home and sleep well, beautiful people. But don't look into each other's eyes, or even your own mirrors. Oh my god, I love Nascenti's narration so much. <laughs> it's great. I like, legitimately, I realize it's incredibly purple, but god, it's so fun. So it's, you know, a lot of it's about fame and about the predatory nature of the crowd. It's also about visibility, because what Dazzler is doing here is performing very much as a mutant. But also not in public, just among this carefully selected crowd. Right, and meanwhile... Dazzler and Beast's private relationship is developing, and the two of them are appearing casually in public together and having to deal with that. And that actually doesn't go well. There's a scene where they're on a beach, one of the many times Beast tries to pull her out of the arena and she ends up going back, where everyone's making fun of them for being, you know, these mutants. They're, you know, talking about how dangerous and how freakish they are. Dazzler's like, no, I, I can't deal with this. I need to go back to the arena where I'm accepted, and my powers are starting to get more out of control again, and I can't be seen in public like this. I gotta go. So he goes and tracks her down at the arena and finds her in an incredibly fucking offensive costume. She's wearing a war bonnet and bad Halloween sexy American Indian clothing. You know, I do appreciate that during this era, while there is a lot of really uncomfortable cultural appropriation, it's almost always associated with villainy. So, you know, small favors. <laughs> there is that. But yeah, I mean, this is becoming more and more her home. Two of the uh, gladiators especially, Maximum Rocker, I mean, well, probably just Max Rocker, but Maximum Rocker and this green woman named Ivich are kind of becoming her friends. And their priorities are kind of messed up. They're talking about how, like, all that really matters is how well you can uh, give the audience what they're paying for and how scars are these badges of honor that show you're really willing to give your all to do so. And something we see that I, is actually a, a narrative technique I love is Dazzler eventually explaining things to Hank in language that eerily echoes that. It's becoming increasingly clear that while Dazzler is nominally part of this group of her own free will, she's not really quite herself. Yeah, and after one of the many arguments that she and Beast have, Beast bounds off saying, screw this, I can't deal with you, and ends up finding in this sort of lab area a big beaker full of fluid labeled Dazzler. Huh. 
he analyzes it using his, you know, beastie scientific skills and realizes that what this is is it's a drug they've been subtly slipping Dazzler to mess with her powers and control when they flare out of control and when they don't. And just as he makes this revelation, he is knocked out by Hugo and Alexander. And it's becoming clearer and clearer. I mean, we knew these guys were sleazy pretty much from day one. But the extent of their sleaziness, the bizarre nature of their villainy, their true and profoundly peculiar purpose is not really, I think, something that we could have predicted. We find that out right after Beast is thrown into the arena with Dazzler. And And they've got a whole Beauty and the Beast set and costumes pre-set up for this. I gotta say, whoever does tech for the underground theater impresses the hell out of me. You know, I'm gonna assume it's Hugo for reasons we will reveal shortly, but who has thus prepared for every eventuality. Yeah, and so they eventually snap out of it. Beast reveals what's going on. They refuse to fight and get imprisoned. At this point, Alexander gets up and basically stages a coup. He tells the gladiators... This man, Hugo, he has been manipulating you. He has been using you. I am stepping in and taking charge. You should kill him. And they do. And at that point, the broadcast to Latveria that Dr. Doom's butler type, who is presumably different than Ziggy the butler from Dazzler in the movie, uh, tells him, hey, you know, these, these broadcasts from the underground arena have cut off. This dude who says he's your son is involved with that. Maybe you should check it out. And so Victor goes to Hollywood. Once again, Doom enriches every story he's in because when he first shows up in Hollywood, he finds Hugo stabbed to death with various gladiator weapons and rips off his head. And he's a Doombot. What? This is what I wanted, Rachel. This is what I always wanted. Yeah, man, with issue four, Beauty and the Beast goes from slightly baffling and a little sad and fairly predictable to... A spectacular explosion of bizarreness. It is delightfully batshit. And yeah, like we see Dazzler and Beast are hanging upside down in a dungeon full of skeletons and rats. Making out. Yeah, flirting with each other and having philosophical conversations about how maybe they were just pushed into their love because the world hasn't treated them well. As they're talking about this, Alexander shows up. And before he was in, you know, like a snazzy suit and maybe some slightly impresario looking uh, fancy stuff. And now he's in this wonderful supervillain outfit. And I'm going to say, look, I have described Havoc's hat as the worst hat in the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, something happens wherein, having made such a judgment, one finds oneself confronting incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, and so I am going to do what is appropriate to do and officially retract my judgment of Havoc's hat and say that no, in fact... What Alexander is wearing in this sequence is the worst hat in the Marvel Universe. Wow. I, I can just imagine, like, Polaris is watching TV and she's, you know, seeing this story. Hey, Alex, Alex, come in, honey. Come in. Take a look at this hat. Alex, come in. He's like, God, why does everyone still have to give me shit about that? Be that as it may, Alexander's hat is worse. And the reason Alexander has donned this terrible hat is that he, as it turns out, is the illegitimate son of Victor Von Doom. And he is the secret mastermind behind this theater and the arena, and his secret plot is to use the gladiatorial battles to put together a small and amazing um, mutant army, which he's calling it an army, it's like a dozen people. Maybe three dozen. To take over Latveria to impress his absentee father. Yeah, like at one point he's talking to a picture of Doom. Yes, father, we are blood. And in the great tradition of Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, and you, father, men who are beyond good and evil by the pure genius of their accomplishments, I shall make you proud. Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, and you is the worst self-help book title ever. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) But anyway, so the, the Our reason, dictators ourselves. Oh, God. <laughs> Are you there, Stalin? It's me, Margaret. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> anyway. 
Um, so the reason he's been able to do this is because he also got from his mother, who is a mutant, the mutant power to empathically control people to a degree. And that's part of why Dazzler's been acting so weird is because he's been both drugging her to make her powers act up and also hypnotizing her empathically to make her want to stay here. And... <laughs> God, I'm sorry. This issue is so amazing. I I was laughing so hard after the Alexander reveal and like the couple pages after it that I had to actually stop reading for about 10 minutes because I could not stop laughing. <laughs> um, so Poltergeist and Link, who are in this, this secluded heartbreak hotel, decide that they are going to finally take fate into their own hands. They're going to they're gonna rescue Dazzler because they know she's involved in something bad. Beast went to save her. He hasn't come back. Yeah, Mickey especially. Kate has been telling him about how, you know, you have to accept this part of yourself, this poltergeist, it's not this other entity, it's a part of you. And really, I mean, this this just feeds into the metaphor of accepting yourself despite what society thinks of you. I mean, Nesenti definitely has a point in what she's writing. And so he's like, all right, fine, then... I'm going to rescue this person that has been really nice to me. And if I die trying, then, well, that's better than what I've been dealing with also. And Link is like, dude, you're not going to get 10 feet. Okay, I'll go with you. Thus creating one of the best duos never further developed in comics. So they they end up at the theater and Mickey brings down walls and Link basically force chokes a bunch of people to death. He does. Yeah, he's mentioned before he hates his powers. And, you know, this is part of why. So Rocker's like, screw this. This is all too messed up. And he lets Beast and Dazzler go. They're trying to make their escape. And there's this giant, giant fight. There are times when men transformed reality. It is the stuff of which myths are made. The Dazzler and the Beast seem to grow to that legendary statue as certain individuals in the face of adversity have always been chosen by fate and forged into what history will call heroes. I want Nan Nesenti to narrate my life. I feel like she's the warrior scald of Marvel Comics. You know, every time you have a big fight, you need some, like, editorial war bard to talk about it. Editorial war bard is the best job title I have ever heard. I think the editorial war bard drives that van that has that stuff we were talking about like, earlier. I, I mentioned that Anne Nesenti is one of my professional heroes. And yeah, okay, so that is my new aspiration, editorial war bard. Okay, we'll see what we can do. We'll get you on LinkedIn. So they do, in fact, win this fight, you know, between Mickey and Link and Dazzler and Beast. They beat Alexander. And uh, Rocker's helping them also. Rocker, the, the horse dude. Well, they sort of beat Alexander. He ends up taking Mickey hostage. Link is about to telekinetically choke him. Dazzler convinces them not to. And then Doom shows up. So, Flynn, this is the great army you have amassed. These are your faithful legions. It seems you pose a far greater threat to yourself than to the rule of Dr. Doom over Latveria. It takes more than a fancy suit and an ill-conceived plan to rise above the rabble as sovereign. You are not possessed of the indefinable essence that makes a man truly great. You are a misbegotten miscreant. It is time to lay rest to your nonsensical claim of the bloodline of Victor Von Doom. Yet... I shall let you live. What ends would be served by your destruction? Bah! bah, bah. He is nothing but a contemptible, pitiful disgrace. Do with him what you will. All right, I want to translate this into American parent speak. Okay, do it. This is Doom basically saying, All right, Flynn, you've proven that you can't play responsibly with your supervillain minions, so I'm just going to have to take them away. And, you know, you just can't do this stuff without having to face the consequences of your actions, so we're going to let the police work this out. You think I'm going to come bail you out just because I'm the dictator of Latveria? Think again, kid. But Dr. Von Dad... No, I'm taking away your emotional manipulation powers. I I don't think he can actually do that, but... (laughs) Man, so I love Alexander Von Doom because he's so shitty. His plan for taking over a country from the dictator who no superheroes can effectively really take down, I guess except for Squirrel Girl once, Mm -hmm. involves like training up a dozen mutant performers to stage fight really well. Well, I mean, they do kill each other, to be fair, in the arena. Like, there is actual death and violence. Once or twice, but it's mostly as a show. 
And and it's framed as a show. So it's not this is an underground fighting ring. Like it's it's set up to be theatrical. And he's going to take these dozen or so random mutants who he's picked up and he's going to invade a country that is guarded by literally an army of doom bots and an incredibly loyal populace and run by his father, who is, if nothing else, a devastatingly competent supervillain. Well, you got to give Alexander Von Doom one thing. He is ever the optimist. He's got a really positive outlook on life. And yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. Rocker ends up taking over the arena because just like the Morlocks don't join up with the X-Men when Storm invites them, they really want to stay outside society. Mickey and Link go off to do their own thing. They're thinking about being cowboys yeah, somewhere. Yeah, no, they, God, I love them so much. And Beast and Dazzler are like, well, you know, think we ought to try it again? Don't you think we make a dynamic duo? I think, Hank, that we'd best find out where we're headed alone. There are reasons we both tried to escape together, but before we can understand them, we need to learn what we were running from. Yes, I guess you're right, Allie. Each of us must find the strength to stand alone on this planet. The odds may be against us, but not for long. Ha <laughs> right. Something that doesn't get explored in this series that I really wish did is the intersection of visible mutation and fame and public identity, because it looks like that's going to be a theme that this plays on, and it doesn't as much as I'd like it to. And I feel like it's a place where Dazzler and Beast just make fascinating, fascinating foils. Beast has to deal with visible mutation in a way that not a lot of heroes do. There are the Morlocks, but of the X-Men, he's among very, very few who straight up at this point can't pass as human. That would have been interesting, but instead it seems like Nesenti really takes it in more of a direction of examining the celebrity mindset and celebrity culture, the idea that you can really lose who you are just in this quest to have people like you more and more, either on a personal level, like in the case of Mickey being worried about his own powers, or on a much grander level, like with Dazzler, like what happened with her in Dazzler the movie, what happened with her even in the arena. I think Nesenti actually has some interesting things to say, whether she's successful in getting those across, You know, some. I don't think she's as successful as she wanted, but I think she does it better than a lot of people could have. I don't think it's very good on its own, but I think it's got the seeds of a lot of really great stuff. I mentioned more examination of beast and visibility and passing and the politics and personal stuff on that. And actually, since since the series didn't give us that, we've commissioned an essay from Elle Collins, who is incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable at the intersection of beast chronology and identity politics. It's going to be going up on the website this week. We haven't done an art challenge in a while. I have an idea for one that comes with the other thing that I would have liked to have seen from this, which is more done with the Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk as a whole lot about it, but the Heartbreak Hotel is a really charming concept. Like you said, it's this B&B full of outcast mutants run by this old hippie sort of den mother with these kids who have been through all this messed up stuff. Like, it's genuinely charming. And honestly, like... I wouldn't recommend reading Dazzler the movie. I kind of would recommend Beauty and the Beast just for the Heartbreak Hotel and also Doctor Doom, of course. I would too. I don't know if it's a good comic, but it's got so much good stuff. And I just, I want every bit character out of this to have a happy ending and to have their own happy future. Like, I want Poltergeist and Link to go be amazing cowboys somewhere. I want Max to, I, I don't know, what would be a happy ending for Max? Like, hook up with Tina Belcher and make both <laughs> of their dreams come true. I, I want the Heartbreak Hotel you know the Sandman story, World's End? Yeah, of course. Like, I want something like that. I want it to be the center of an anthology series of weird little stories about mutants out in the world. And you could have some X-Men intersection and some superheroes, but mostly it would just be like off-the-beat stories that didn't totally fit the rest of the mutant stuff in the Marvel Universe. And then, you know, have, have like Tales from the Heartbreak Hotel be a thing. So this is our art challenge, guys. We want to see your fan art for the Heartbreak Hotel series that was never made. We'll post some reference on the As Mentioned post. And uh, yeah, go for it. From Cowboys to aging hippie former superhero landladies. Kate, the old hippie lady, she gets together once a year at the same bar that she never otherwise goes to when Harvey and Janet come to visit and they bring their families and, you know, tell her about what's been up for the last year. This is good. We're creating our whole, like, amazing, weird supporting character multiverse. And, you know, we fix it on weird little bit characters a lot, but the Heartbreak Hotel ones are so 
good. It's not just funny to go on about how they should be main characters. Like, they're great. They're fascinating. They're evocative. But Heartbreak Hotel aside and uh, ultimately Dazzler aside, we have some questions. So let's dive into those. So Genosha Tour Guide on Tumblr, and man, that's got to be a rough career these days. Seriously. Um, asks, I finally picked up the Longshot miniseries you guys recommended, but there's something I don't quite understand here. Where's Dazzler? Did they break up at some point between the 80s and now? Is she dead? What's she been up to? If it's really bad, you could probably make a fun cold open out of it. So uh, the answer is kind of a lot, but kind of not a lot at the same time. Um, I'll just sort of hit the relevant stuff. In the 80s, Dazzler went through the Siege Perilous, which a lot of the X-Men did. This is a portal where you go through it and it judges you and puts you in basically a new life with no memories. So she lost her memory, but she regained it when she met up with Longshot again. At that point, the two of them went back to the Mojoverse, which is where Longshot comes from, this sort of media-focused, terrible, terrible world, to start a rebellion. And since Dazzler's career was dead and she was back with the man she loved, she figured, okay, I'll do this. During this time, she got pregnant, they started basically a war, and we didn't really see what happened with that until it was referenced when she came back and basically said, I had a miscarriage, there was this war, I don't want to talk about it. And of course, later on, that miscarriage would turn out to not have been a miscarriage, that was really Shatterstar, but that is a very long story. She later re-met Longshot in the X-Men Die by the Sword miniseries, but his memory was gone now, so they didn't really have the connection that they did before. Oh man, that just keeps swapping that off. That's so sad. Since then, she's been uh, an on-and-off member of the X-Men for quite a long time, usually a minor or sort of medium importance character, seldom a major one. If you're looking for a good, more recent Dazzler story, she is the main character of Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men, and she's fantastic in that. Yeah, that's sort of a reality-hopping thing. These days, she's gone sort of all gothy and angry and joined up with Cyclops' team after being impersonated by Mystique and having Mystique harvest a mutant growth hormone from her comatose body. So uh, now she's wearing a lot of ripped-up black and a lot of mascara and is very angry about this whole thing, and will probably be going after Mystique as soon as the 6,000 events that are currently going on uh, give her a chance to do so. So, Legendary Heroes blog on Tumblr asks... What current Marvel books are you guys reading? I'm actually really interested to see how the experts experience the Marvel Universe. Our other big Marvel foothold, for the most part, is Asgard. So right now, our pull list is Thor, Loki, Angela, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, Silver Surfer, and Hawkeye. We're probably, I assume we're going to end up adding Squirrel Girl to that. (laughs) It's quite possible, yeah. But of those, um, you know, the Asgard stuff's really fun. If you're not reading both Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel, they are stellar. I'm sure you've, if you are much familiar with the current comics world, you've heard about the critically acclaimed Hawkeye by Matt Fraction. It's awesome. And that's about to end... So with that, you might want to wait for the trade rather than picking it up in series. Although Jeff Lemire is taking it over, isn't he? Yeah, I'm curious how that goes. And a surprising book for me is recommended by Sean, uh, the comic book guy that we we go to. Who we love so much. Sean is the best. He is the manager of the Milwaukee Things from Another World. He knows what we like to read, and we trust his recommendations implicitly. Yeah, so when he said, uh, you should buy Silver Surfer by Dan Slott and Mike Allred, we said, okay and it's been really really entertaining it's just it's just fun and weird and colorful and unpredictable and and i recommend that too and i believe that is all the time we have for today Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our website, rachelandmiles.com. Uh, you can check out rachelandmiles.com anytime during the week for all kinds of extra content, uh, visual companions to every episode, essays, fan art, and lots, lots more. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and it's made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. So guys, thank you so much. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website. Speaking of that, one of the perks that comes with certain Patreon tiers is thanks on air in a number of ridiculous voices. And today, the angry Claremontian narrator has a few things to say. All right, go for it, Claremont. Were you so torn between two worlds, Doug the Submariner, so desperate for a place to belong that you poured your heart, 
your soul, your very loyalty into a ridiculous podcast by two jerks with a thing for continuity? What have you done, Doug the Submariner? What have you done? And speaking of Patreon, one of the things that our supporters unlocked recently was a t-shirt of the month. So every month we're going to have a new t-shirt just on sale for the duration of that month. And our very first one of those is up now. Those of you familiar with our favorite Claremontisms may enjoy it. It is designed by Dylan Todd, and it is a reference to uh, Cannonball's best catchphrase. I'm not invulnerable when I'm blasting. We'll stick a link to that in the as mentioned. Um, Again, that is just available in December. It'll be switching to something else in January. So keep an eye out if that's the kind of thing you're into. Uh, Next week, we will be back looking at some of our favorite annuals, including the New Mutants debut of another hard-rocking mutant who is here to tickle your eardrums and fence your homeworld. Lila Shaney in Steal This Planet. (laughs) 